The reading this morning is taken from chapter, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, which can be found on page 969 and 986 on the Pew Bibles. That will be Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32, and Matthew 19, verses 3 to 11. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them female, male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command as a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us a clear understanding from what the Lord Jesus uh, is saying and how it applies to us and to our world today. Amen. Well, today we're looking at the third of the antitheses which uh, Jesus raises in the Sermon of the Mount. There are six of them in which, on the one hand, Jesus takes the religious tradition of his day and says, you have heard, and he contrasts that with, but I tell you, or as he may well also say, it is written. So he's talking about the divine take on things, not the human uh, distortion of them. So he corrects and he goes beyond the religious traditions of his day to divine imperatives, often involving attitudes as much as actions. And today, it is divorce and remarriage in the Sermon on the Mount. Just to put it in context today, you'll see from the outline, which you'll find uh, helpful to follow, that there are loads of sad statistics, and behind sad statistics, there are always human casualties. But some statistics kind of give us uh, a flicker of hope. We'll consider them all. If uh, family breakdown undoubtedly is a serious cause for concern, if current trends remain as they are, any child born today in the United Kingdom 
has only a 50-50 chance of being with both their birth parents by the age of 15. Cohabiting parents make up 19% of all couples with dependent children, but they account for 50% of all family breakdown. Children suffer greatly from family breakdown. Marriage boosts self-esteem for teenagers. Childhood self-esteem predicts future life chances. Teenagers' self-esteem is influenced by whether or not their parents are married. Most of this I've got from an organisation called the Marriage Foundation, which was set up by a bunch of judges who have experience in the family court. And it's a research uh, body. Children are now more likely, they say, to have a smartphone than a father at home. And children need father figures, especially boys. What children on BBC TV's show Mum and Dads Are Splitting Up had to say, this is what Daryl said. Mum said, well, me and Dad are splitting up. I said, why? And Mum and Dad both said, well, it's the time, it's the right time to do it. And I thought, well, I don't think so. I think it can be sorted out. I burst into tears and I went and got the rabbit and had a cuddle. It's quite sad, really, to think that your parents splitting up came down to talking. Do you know what I mean? That's pathetic, because this could have all been avoided, he says. A divorce lawyer's view. He speaks of it as the slaughterhouse of the law, with more pain than could fill a million books. Or a divorce judge's view. Judge Christopher Compson is a judge in the family division of the High Court. He spends his life sorting out the mess that follows when couples separate and can't agree about the children. He's also been divorced himself, remarried and become a believer. In his book, Divorce, A Practical Guide, he says, I always tell people to try like mad not to get divorced. Divorce is painful and lonely. And with the rarest exceptions, children are always better off with both parents, even if the marriage is not always a happy one. Today's emphasis on individualism rather than the family is a tragedy. And it is an incredibly financially costly tragedy. Family Mediation Week recently highlighted the 48 billion cost to the rest of society and calls for more mediation. Just to put that in context, that is more than we spend on the defence budget. It's more than half of the education budget. It is a third of the entire National Health Service budget. Today, irretrievable breakdown due to unreasonable behaviour is by far the most uh, usual um, grounds for divorce. And you might think that that's quite a high bar. This is what three different law firms say about unreasonable behaviour on their websites. 
One, in an unreasonable behaviour petition, the petitioner sets out a number of allegations against the respondent. If the allegations are relatively mild, for example, carelessness with money or devoting too much time towards a career, then five or six allegations are required. Law firm two, usually only five or six fairly mild allegations should be sufficient to convince the court and we are very experienced in drafting these petitions correctly. And the third one, the courts do not set a very demanding standard and in practice it is not normally too difficult to find some examples of unreasonable behaviour sufficient to satisfy a court that a marriage has broken down. It is, of course, effectively divorce on demand. But there is a better story. There is hope. Relationships can be turned around. <coughs> Nearly all parents, 93%, who stay together until their children reach 15, are married. Parents who are married before they have a child are far more likely to stay together. They all kind of steer us in a direction, don't they? That marriage is much more likely to end up with a stable situation than cohabitation is. Only 9% of couples who break up have a high-conflict relationship, which just simply means they argue a lot in the year prior to splitting up. 60% of couples are both happy and not quarrelling a year prior to splitting up. Relationships are salvageable. Mend it, don't end it, is the slogan. Almost a third, 27% of couples cite simply drifting apart as the reason why they divorced. The chances of a baby being together on its uh, fifth birth, of, of its parents being together on its fifth birthday are these, cohabiting, 48%. Marry after birth, 75. Married before birth, 92. It tells us a lot. What does it look like from a teenager's point of view? We saw Daryl. Most teenagers want a lifelong marriage for themselves. Most fear infidelity and family breakup. It's quite obvious that things need to change in our country. So let's first this morning take a look at what marriage is, then to see if there are any legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage, and finally to look at how we as church and Christians may play our part in improving things. So scripture, the maker's instructions. Genesis 2.24 Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So it is, if we analyse it, a man and his wife. So that rules out polygamy. That is a man with many wives. It rules out polyandry, a woman with many husbands. It rules out same-sex relationships, because it is clearly a heterosexual relationship, a man and his wife. And this is the situation that prevailed before the fall, before things went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. It is God's norm. 
It is endorsed by our Lord Jesus Christ, where in uh, the account of his life and teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each evangelist records that Jesus endorsed that definition for marriage. So, back to the blueprint. What's involved? Three things. Leave his father and his mother, cleave unto his wife, and shall become one flesh. So, leaving. So, a couple leaves their father and their mother. That's a public event. And that's why in the Church of England, marriages have to take place between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., So if you book a 4 p.m. wedding, do not be late because you can't marry you after 6 p.m. Because it's in those daylight hours so that anybody in the community can actually go past and say and walk in. They can attend your wedding whether you invite them or not. They can't attend the reception, but they can attend the service. It is a public thing. And it's a way in which our society is able to sort of say, oh yeah, I see a new social unit is being established in our society. It means that that man and that woman are no longer in the marriage market. It means, if you like, hands off. A marriage is a transferring of primary relationships. Until we're married, our primary relationship is to our parents. On getting married, our primary relationship is to our partner. For the husband, his wife is the most important person in the world. And for the wife, her husband is now the most important person in the world. And even when children come along, that is still the case. And then there's this rather quaint old English word, cleave. It literally means in Hebrew, to be glued to. So, in the nicest possible way, a husband and wife are stuck with each other. And one flesh. The marriage between a man and a woman is a unique relationship and it has a unique expression. Because we have bodies, a social relationship has a physical expression. Now, on meeting somebody, anybody, for the first time, we English may well just say, how do you do? Um, If they happen to be um, a bit more polite social gathering, there might be that sort sort of hug thing, just, you know, yeah, not too close a hug, you know? If, of course, it's a lifelong friend you haven't seen for a couple of years, it may well be a bear hug. You know, each relationship has an appropriate physical expression. And the most unique relationship of all, marriage, has the most complete uh, physical expression. And to mix them up is to get confused and to devalue relationships. Saving sexual intercourse for marriage means no STIs, no guilt, no hang-ups, no comparisons. And the expected outcome will normally be children. So marriage according to scripture, is an exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. It is preceded by the public leaving of parents, issuing in a permanent partnership, and normally blessed with children. And then we read 
the two verses that we're looking at today in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Well, that was allowed by Moses um, because of the hardness of people's hearts. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 24. You could find it on page 202 if you want to uh, check. If a man marries a woman who has become displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now that may sound very permissive from a husband's point of view. On its own, it sounds like any discontented husband could divorce his life very easily indeed if he found something indecent about her. He could divorce her. And among the Jews, it was debated on what grounds a man could divorce his wife. The followers of Rabbi Shammai took the strict line, something indecent meant some sexual offence, while the followers of Rabbi Hillel took a very laissez-faire line. The husband could divorce his wife for any and every reason, he says. And some of the reason given in the rabbinic literature that was around at the time of Christ included gossiping in the street, losing her looks, having an unsightly mole, and putting too much salt in the soup. <laughs> Remember, that isn't in the Bible. That is human tradition written by men. So sadly, um, this is what it had come to in Jewish society. But it was not even intended in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it was a concession, not a command. Moses was actually out to protect the wife and to restrict remarriage by not allowing the husband to divorce his wife, then he remarry, then if that doesn't work out, he divorces that one, and then he thinks, oh, I'll have the first one back. That would basically be really several legalized flings, wouldn't it? In other words, if he divorced his wife, it must be permanent. It was concession because of human sinfulness. In no way does it conflict with an expression of God's heart in Malachi, where he says that he hates divorce. He hates the breakup of committed relationships. So Jesus accepts this mosaic uh, concession. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. 
Now, if you removed the words in bold, except for marital unfaithfulness, you get basically that I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So it would mean that a man divorces his wife, she then marries someone else, which would make her an adulteress, and the new husband also becomes an adulterer. If it would like that, then it would, of course, rule out divorce and remarriage altogether. But it does include what they call the exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness. And a lot hangs on it. The phrase is literally porneia. That's the Greek word from which we get the English word pornography. What does it mean? Some have claimed that it means to be guilty of premarital sexual activity. The husband, in other words, discovers on his wedding light that he is not getting married to a virgin. And it was used in that sense in the ancient world. And if that is all that Pornea refers to, then that would rule out divorce and remarriage completely. But is it the only way in which Pornea is used? To which the answer is no. It is also used to refer to extramarital unfaithfulness. This being the case, the man could divorce his wife if she commits adultery. And since remarriage was assumed in their culture, he could remarry in good conscience. But if it wasn't on the grounds of marital unfaithfulness, then he would have wrongly divorced her and makes her and her new husband adulterers. Now in church history, most of the early church fathers, that's the people of the first five or six centuries, took the stricter interpretation. Whereas in the 16th century, at the time of the Reformation, with people like Calvin and Luther, they did recognise the legitimate possibility of divorcing an unfaithful partner and remarrying. You didn't have to. It was not a command, but it was a permission. Repentance by the guilty party, forgiveness by the grieved party, followed by amendment of life, could effect a reconciliation by the grace of God. And the reformers are usually better interpreters of the Bible than those of the earliest centuries of the Christian church. So Jesus is affirming the permanence of marriage with this one exception. Not that the faithful partner has to divorce the unfaithful one, but they may do so if the unfaithful one won't return and be reconciled. There's also in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 to 16, which we haven't got time to go into, that adds that uh, the faithful partner to desertion is in a similar situation. They may divorce and remarry, but they don't have to. So, a summary of those views are these. There are three. You'll see them outlined on the uh, back of our uh, song sheet. There is what's called the indissolublist position. This is the classic position of the Roman Catholic Church. It is also a view that is held by some evangelicals. If you wanted to read up on it, it's in a book called um, uh, Jesus and Divorce by Heath and Wenham. 
and it argues that marriage is a permanent bond. It can be annulled in the case of union within the prohibited decrees. In the Bible and in English law, you are not allowed to marry some very close relatives. It's illegal. Or, in the biblical case, in the case of premarital unchastity. But they would argue that divorce is impossible. Remarriage is always sinful and creates an adulterous relationship. They would say Christians are bound by God's creation ideal rather than the Mosaic concessions in this matter. And the church accordingly can never countenance anything except separation with the couple remaining unmarried at least until the death of one or other of the partners. The second view is that divorce is permissible on the grounds of adultery and desertion. And this is the classic Protestant view. It's accepted by, I think, the majority of evangelicals. If you wanted to read up on it, then I'd suggest you read John Stott in Issues Facing Christians Today um, or John Murray on uh, divorce. It argues that sexual union is what creates the one flesh bond and adultery breaks this. The innocent party is not initiating the divorce in such a case. The adultery has already created the divorce situation. It argues in the world of the New Testament that divorce always carried with it the possibility of remarriage, as Matthew 5.32 assumes. And such remarriage is not adulterous in the case of the innocent partner. However, some would wish an innocent partner to wait until their former spouse had remarried before enacting a second marriage themselves in order to hold out every opportunity for reconciliation. And the third view, which uh, some Christians uh, in practice hold, is the classic liberal position, which is now enshrined in British law, It's advocated, for example, by David Atkinson, who was once the Bishop of Thetford, in his book To Have and to Hold. It argues for a covenant model for marriage rather than this uh, metaphysical sexual union created by sexual intercourse. And he would argue that covenants can be broken in many ways. And though sin is always involved, it is wrong to over-specify the grounds which might constitute such a breakdown. Any situation in which reconciliation proves impossible is, he argues, de facto sufficient to break the marriage. However, whilst marriage is undoubtedly a covenant, it is much more like the covenant that God has with his people, described at length, for example, in Ezekiel 16, which is conceived as being something permanent, and the people are only punished when they are unfaithful to him and play the harlot. It seems to restrict the grounds for breaking the covenant to marital unfaithfulness. Marriage is not like the other kinds of covenants in the ancient world which were political or commercial or even involving simple friendship which could be broken by much lighter offences. So in summary, God's intention is that a man and a woman live together in an exclusive lifelong union. God does provide a concession of divorce. It is not commanded. It is not even encouraged in Scripture. And even where it is quite justified, it remains a sad departure from God's ideal. 
Divorce and remarriage are permissible, though not mandatory for the innocent party in the situation of adultery and desertion. But what about? And there are lots of what's about, aren't there? What about other grounds where scripture says nothing? Obviously, there is a need to tread very carefully. There is, for example, the problem of definition. Unreasonable behavior could range from attempted murder to raised voices. It is not easy to decide where to draw the line and all too easy to get divorce effectively on demand in the UK today. What about the seemingly illegitimate remarriage? If, for example, your marriage may have no biblical warrant, what do you do? Well, you and others have to regard it as legitimate. Deuteronomy 24 says that there should be no attempt to reconcile former marriages once that remarriage has occurred no matter how inadequate the moral grounds for that remarriage may have been. What about remarriage in church? About eight years ago, the Church of England um, did pass um, a measure that made that possible in some circumstances. It's quite a lengthy procedure, should anyone want to, and it involves the bishop giving permission. But each individual Anglican church is free to adopt its own policy as to whether it would conduct remarriages or whether it would, in certain circumstances, or whether it would uh, continue the, the previous tradition, which is to have services of prayer and dedication in certain circumstances, what people often call a blessing. Well, our PCC, about seven or eight years ago, we had a long discussion over many months about this, and came to, I think, a unanimous conclusion that we would offer, in certain circumstances, a service of prayer and dedication after a civil marriage, but that we wouldn't conduct remarriages. Obviously, if we offer a service of blessing, we think it's legitimate for the couple to be remarried. But in order to uphold the ideal of monogamy, while at the same time extending grace to those who have fallen, we don't perform second and subsequent marriages. So finally, what can our church do to improve the situation that we find in our country today? Well, we can teach what God's take on marriage, divorce and remarriage is. We can have church members who model and affirm by their lives marriage as God intended. And there are some very good models around in our church, usually held by people who would be horrified at the thought that I would kind of suggest that they were a good model. There are also good courses to go on like our marriage course, which is watch a video, have a meal together, just talk together. You don't have to talk to anybody else. 
may have proved to be both very popular and very helpful. We should help those in difficulties to reconcile. I know from a frustrating experience that that is easier said than done. If one party does not want reconciliation or if they will not admit their faults, it is very difficult to get anywhere. But if both do, then a good outcome is very likely. Thirdly, we should help those innocent parties who have perhaps had the dirty done to them come through. Divorce Recovery Workshop over many years has helped many people through the trauma that is divorce. And fourthly, we should encourage those who have sinned to seek God's forgiveness and his grace. As I know that a good number in our fellowship have done. And to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth to quote a prayer at the end of the funeral service, which I'll pray now on behalf of all of us who know that our lives are not as perfect as God intends them to be. Let's pray. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins, the evil we have done and the good we have not done. And strengthen us to follow the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.